Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Very special because today we reach a milestone. This is our 100th episode of the podcast. To be fair, we've released a lot more with our extra content and the book club, but the main podcast, the core of what we do, has now reached episode 100. Thanks to all of you for listening, whether you've been here since episode 1 or whether you've just joined us. The Folklore Podcast was started back in July of 2016 as something of an experiment, intending to be a hobby and to see what happened. Five years later, we have over one and a quarter million downloads that we've been able to track. We're ranked in the top 1% of podcasts in our area globally by audience. And we've been able to develop the book club and now also the folklore library and archive. All, hopefully, for the benefit of future research. Our ethos remains unchanged. To give free access to experts and resources in the fields of folklore. We still don't take sponsorship, and we'd like to keep it that way for as long as possible. We believe in the material, not in the need to be a business. Having said that, we have grown a lot, and it's amazingly time-consuming and expensive to keep everything going. So we are so grateful to our Patreon supporters. Now, it's been said many times, but without them, we couldn't do what we do in the way that we do it. Also, to those that make one-off donations from time to time. We do need the support always, so if you are able to celebrate our milestone by helping us towards the next 100 episodes, then please visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com, where there's many options to help. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for an announcement about something special in August. But for now, joining me in this special edition is my guest Marianne O'Hotter, who many listeners might know from her various TV appearances. Marianne's a broadcaster and author specialising in anthropology and archaeology. Her TV and radio credits include Channel 4 cult series Time Team, BBC Two's Britain Afloat about historic boats, Mystic Britain, currently running on Smithsonian Channel, where she and Clive Anderson hunt down mysterious aspects of British archaeology. Marianne's most recent book was published last year, Secret Britain, Unearthing Our Mysterious Past. That reveals 75 of Britain's most intriguing sites and artefacts, from famous ones like Stonehenge or Sutton Hoo, to less well-known. And her previous book, Hidden Histories, A Spotter's Guide to the British Landscape, explores the historical features which you can spot in the countryside around you. That was shortlisted for Current Archaeology's Book of the Year Award, and it was selected by historian Tom Holland as a New Statesman Book of the Year. Marianne also performs archaeological storytelling shows with storyteller Jason Buck, and they've developed a series of shows called Secret Histories, which take real-life artefacts and sites and then build stories that did or could have happened around them. They describe these shows as a, a meeting of art and science, drawing on famous tales, folklore and archaeological science to bring the past to life. Marianne is a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, a lifetime member of the Open Spaces Society, and a hiking ambassador for the British Mountaineering Council. She holds an MA from Cambridge University in Archaeology and Anthropology. Marianne and I discussed the broad subject of folklore in the landscape. 
Marianne, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. It's lovely to finally have you here after uh, having chatted for a long time about getting together. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honour and a pleasure. It's wonderful to uh, hear you and, uh, in my case, to see you as well. Um, now, <laughs> many people will, will know your work from um, TV primarily. You are a broadcaster before being an author, really, um, archaeologist and anthropologist. So they'll probably know you from Time Team or, or possibly from your newspaper analysis on Sky News from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> um, the- not not exactly my, my kind of heartland, but I quite like sometimes turning up on uh, on news programmes with a, a sort of slightly left field anthropological take or kind of going oh well interestingly this compares uh to the bronze age or something really really random just to get people thinking while they're eating their cereal it's nice to get people thinking yes and of course <laughs> talking of cereal for those those of us of a particular age obviously you are probably the archaeologist who's been responsible for selling more cereal than um than anybody <laughs> else but for anybody who doesn't understand that i'm not going to go any further with that comment they can work that out for themselves that is very enigmatic okay let's leave that as a teaser <laughs> <laughs> you've got to have a bit of fun with people uh and of course you are also an author uh of two beautiful books that i have with me here hidden histories a spotter's guide to the british landscape and secret britain which which deal very much with um the landscape around us now we all normally spend a lot of time in the landscape but I think perhaps a lot of people don't give it much of a second thought, do they? Um, but why Why should they? Why is the landscape important to us as a species, primarily? Well, I think there are lots of different ways of... of lots of different levels of, of looking or noticing or understanding or, or kind of trying to make meaning out of the landscape. I mean, we all do it because if you're trying to walk to the shop, walk to the train station, even navigate getting into your car, you're engaging with the physical world, aren't you? I mean, that's quite a sort of facile example. but um, And you might notice certain details if they're relevant to you. So you might notice that, um, you know, there's a bump in the pavement or it's raining or, oh, that, that, that blooming wind is back and, you know, it's going to ruin my dahlias. Whatever it is, you notice if you care. And I think the thing that archaeologists, uh, the thing that people who are engaged with the past, but also people who are engaged with folklore and story and that relationship between humans and the landscape and making sense. I think we engage with the landscape in, in many more different ways that aren't quite so practical always, but kind of try and eke out the meaning of of those features around us so one of the reasons that i wrote um hidden histories which as you say is is a spotter's guide to the british landscape so it's helping you puzzle out what are those funny lumps and bumps uh what's that thing on the the hillside as you're driving past um i'm going down a very straight road is this a roman road um, all those questions that you might sort of ask yourself or, or you know, you're walking into a pub and it's clearly a very old building. But how might you work out some more details of of it, of its history, of its place within the village that it's sitting on? Uh, you know, 
with a, a village green in front of it and a duck pond perhaps and one road that says dark lane and one road that says green lane and one that says church lane i mean church lane is pretty obvious probably isn't it but and i think i think for us there's a lot more to be explored in the landscape because not only can you find meaning with relation to yourself in the modern day but you can also start to tell stories about the past based on truth but also the 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 beauty the magic of folklore the the reason i think it, it appeals to so many people is that we're not the first people to have imagined stories in landscapes and that has its own layer of um history that sort of settles on a landscape that you can engage with so wherever you go in britain you know you're walking through about 10,000 years of of permanent human inhabitation and and that's an amazing treasury of stories and meaning. Now, but archaeology is very tangible, isn't it? You know, you you dig a site, there are things you examine the things. Folklore is intangible heritage. So how does folklore help you as an archaeologist or as an anthropologist to interpret those sites? It's a really good question. I think archaeology is getting better at not making up stuff or kind of leaping wildly to some non-evidence-based conclusion. But but archaeologists are better at saying the tangible, the material culture gives us the kind of the raw data. But from that, we still have to analyse and interpret and make sense in in human ways, which has to incorporate the intangible. So I think one of the things that I'm particularly interested about in in archaeology are the aspects where it isn't just about, I don't know, stratigraphy or the the scientific basis of radiocarbon dating or, you know, uh you know, isotope analysis or something like that. It's it's for me, I'm glad someone else is doing it and to the level that they, they are because it gives us so much more information. But for me, it's the kind of the why. Well, who were the people doing this? Why were they doing this? What what were they thinking when they were doing this? And those are the sites and artefacts that really draw me in because they are inherently a combination of the tangible and the intangible. And to to fully understand a human experience, which is what archaeology is about, you kind of you need both and i think that's where folklore comes in because not only does it give you sometimes a very kind of strong historical basis of this is an interpretation that people have offered through many generations and this is how they told the stories and perhaps this is why they told the stories and this is how they then responded either in terms of making meaning or i don't know protecting their barn uh, with apotropaic marks or something like that, something quite practical. Um, or it might be a, a means for us to kind of think more broadly outside of our own little narrow sort of secular, rational worldview. Because we're not actually that secular and we're definitely not that rational. You know, we've got all, all manner of everyday magic woven into our lives. It's just that we don't recognise it as such. Yes, absolutely. And, 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 Often we use it without recognising it as such as well. And and in many cases, even if you look at superstition, we use it without even 
believing it. You know, how many how many people walk <laughs> around a ladder rather than under a ladder? How many people salute a magpie? Do they actually believe that something bad is going to happen if they don't do that? It's just ingrained, isn't it? Yeah, and if you kind of some people say, well, well, just that's what you do. But I think one of the things that's fascinating is to try and unpack, well, what would happen if you didn't? Hmm. Um, There was a really lovely exhibition at the Ashmolean Museum a couple of years back about magic and witchcraft. And the first thing that you were sort of confronted with as you walked into this dark and quite dramatic space, you felt like... um, I love the word liminal. Uh, it felt like you were sort of passing over this this kind of threshold into a different space. And then there was a beautifully, very dramatically lit ladder leaning up against the wall of the of the exhibition. And there was space enough to walk around it or you, there was space enough to walk under it. And it was really lovely kind of going, oh, OK, like someone that they're playing that they're, they're really joyfully playing with what is magic because i think quite possibly you could have walked in expecting to see you know etchings of of witch trials or you know some kind of artifact from the from pendle hill but actually the the immediate confrontation was you're in this too this is this is about what you think and and how you act in the world as well do you think though that there's an expectation there that because because you're in an exhibition about witchcraft and superstition and there's a ladder that people will deliberately walk under it in that <laughs> scenario, whereas going down the high street, they would walk around it because I mean, somehow you... it's different. <laughs> yeah, because you're being tested. I mean, that's the other lovely thing about um, history versus archaeology, isn't it? Archaeology doesn't lie. I mean, you can what you say you do and what you actually do are two different things entirely. But I do think that um, not walking under a ladder down the high street, I mean, you don't know what they're doing up there. seems like a very sensible thing to do. Sometimes I cross the road. Um, <laughs> That's probably Not the because option. I'm superstitious, I, just because I don't want anything to fall on my head. <laughs> I'm very rational, what can that's, I say? That's probably wise. Um, there is obviously a legal requirement whenever we have a folklore discussion to use the word liminal as well. It's very important. Oh, so right, we, can, okay. we can tick that box off now as having been Excellent. achieved. It's, <laughs> it, it is, I mean, in all seriousness, it's a term that comes up often, isn't it? This this boundary state idea. Um, and And actually, that's an interesting point. Does it come up physically in terms of archaeological sites in the landscape as well? You know, we talk about these boundary states and obviously thresholds the threshold of a doorway is an obvious one talking about mm. apotropaic markings and so on does it come up in other ways within archaeological sciences is the boundary important in that way yeah i think so and, and this is this is an idea that's that's drawn um quite heavily i guess from ethnography so so sort of practical anthropology where you can look at different um cultures and the way that societies either mark changes in a person's status so for example becoming an adult um becoming a warrior uh becoming a a mother or a father stuff like that where you become someone different to the people to the community in which you live to the world that that you know you belong to um but you can see it kind of written out in in the ways that different aspects of the landscape have been used through time um uh, really you you obviously have gateways and thresholds and things like that where it could be just a functional thing you know where you put a door in the way and then it stops the wind and the rain getting in um but things like passage 
passage tombs. So uh, a good example being being um, Brinkethley V in Anglesey. It's a, a passage grave where the passages are lined for midsummer sunrise. It's very similar to, in, in certain stylistic elements, it's similar to um, passage graves that you might find in Ireland, like Newgrange. And it sort of forces you, it forces you to change your shape. It forces you to move differently. And you're going from the outside world into a, a central chamber. And I think that's not an accident. You, you don't necessarily need a, a, a very long passage to get into a central chamber. You could just have a, a doorway or, a, you know, some kind of threshold like that. But it, it kind of, there's a beat in the experience of the monument that means that you have to physically change and you then enter somewhere different. And so there's that almost sort of like that pause, that that time out of time before you then enter somewhere else. Now, of course, we don't know who it was that was entitled to enter into that central space. I mean, now anyone can walk in and you can make of it what you will. You can um, go in kind of very practically and, you know, be on the clock because you've got an appointment with an ice cream on the beach in a minute. Um, Or you can try and, I don't know, I, I really enjoy trying to settle myself in a place and almost imagine what it might be like in a different time. I mean, it's very, it's very different and difficult, isn't it, to step outside of my my modern Gore-Tex walking shoes into the mindset of someone who either constructed this monument or knows that they're entering a place where their ancestors' remains are held or where they feel that spirits live or where there's some kind of... Um, threshold again between the living and the dead perhaps the light and the dark perhaps the the above ground and the underworld because they've kind of created an artificial cave you enter in and then you're in this darkened space with the heaviness of tons of rock and earth above you and it is like you're in the earth now and I think that's not an accident I mean there's lots of different ways of constructing something if you want to just make a bone house then there are much easier ways of doing that. What they've created is a portal into the earth. And I think that's very liminal. It's a, it's a threshold space. You're, you're neither one thing nor the other as you're entering in. And then you are somewhere very different once you are in. And then we also see, um, we also see evidence of um, people using liminal landscapes in in special ways as well so a lovely example is is bog bodies in the iron age or um watery offerings in the iron age where people have put um metalwork or um offerings or people into places where it's not entirely wet it's not a fast running river it's not the sea but they're kind of marsh sides or river edges or boggy ground where it's neither one thing nor the other. It's not hard land that's useful for crops or animals or walking on, but it's also not wet, useful water that you would necessarily, you know, take your animals to drink or perhaps even necessarily use as a a kind of a water source for yourselves. Um, 
And yet these places that are w neither one thing nor the other appear to be um, revered in a particular way. And I find that fascinating. I think it's a very, very ancient, it's a very ancient urge, not just to kind of look into water, because, you know, it's, it's a very useful resource. You get reed, you get um, thatch, you get water birds to eat, you get eggs, you get fish, all that stuff. You know, that's great. Uh, it's also quite a good place to preserve stuff, if if you understand that. I mean, there's there's a big debate about whether um, some of these Iron Age offerings, so you get things like bog butter, where people have put a big, you know, a big churn, a big pat of butter into the uh, into the into the bog and when it's rediscovered now it's sort of turned into this strange waxy substance because of the you know the chemical interactions over 2000 odd years it is no longer butter please don't eat it um but you kind of think well is that an offering is that like a bog body where people weren't planning on coming back to it or is it something that was put in there because it's cool and people discovered that things in bogs don't rot down they don't decompose in the way that they do if they're out in out in the open air because of this um very low oxygen environment the the bacteria just don't get a chance to to get going that's why we end up with with um you know pretty much whole bodies that have been preserved by the bog and um and and are still still going strong now, two thousand years later. Um, we can only ever speculate about a lot of these things, can't we? You know, it, it might be an, an offering to a water deity, or it might be a fridge. <laughs> and, and it's just <laughs> yeah. we can't tell. And but that's kind of the fun and the beauty of a lot of this. It's the same with folklore. You know, you will never. No, you can sometimes find an origin point for a story in folklore. Um. But usually, it's impossible to trace an origin, and things change and develop over time. I mean, mm. nothing has any meaning, does it, until we ascribe that meaning to it. You know, uh, a, a four-legged stool has meaning as something to sit on, if it's the right way up. But if you didn't <laughs> know that it had to be that way up, it could be interpreted entirely differently... And you yeah. know, in different cultures, will interpret different objects in different ways. Um, is that the same with archaeology? Are we sometimes having to try and ascribe a story or ascribe meaning to the landscape where we're having to speculate more? Um. I mean, yes, I, th I think it obviously does happen. And the thing about archaeology is that you're never dealing with the full complement of evidence. You're dealing with just some of the puzzle pieces. Even if you had all the puzzle pieces, you still have to say, well, what is it that people meant? Why were they doing that? Um, you know, think of any contemporary situation and you could unpack it and say, okay, well, I've got the evidence in front of me. I've got, you know, more evidence than I can, than I can ever process. But that doesn't necessarily help me get into the psyche of someone who has done this strange and bizarre thing or has decided to, you know, go and live in a hut, build their own house. Uh, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, kind of, why did you choose to buy that thing in Sainsbury's? 
another prosaic example, but you know, people make millions of pounds trying to work out why we do certain things when we go shopping or not. Um, mostly in order to sell us more stuff, but, but you know, like we're, we're complex animals. We, we aren't very easy to decipher at the best of times with all the evidence even if you've got the person in front of you to interrogate. Um, but I think, I think archaeology, archaeology has changed hugely in two ways. One is that the capacity, the, the kind of the scientific developments mean that we can get much more information from the remains, from the evidence that we have. Often it's, um, evidence that we can draw without destroying the sample as well. You know, so you can kind of do remote sensing, you can do LIDAR, which is, which builds amazingly complex pictures of the landscape without having to trudge across it. Um, or without necessarily, you know, you can do geophysics where you don't need to excavate. You can see the layout of a, a site without digging it up. And once you've dug it up, you've destroyed it. Um, but the other thing about archaeology, I think, that has really come on leaps and bounds recently is the confidence that people have to 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 try and make sense of it, to interpret it, to tell a story about a site. And that's 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 a huge part of, of science communication. You can't just say, well, here are the calibrated radiocarbon dates and this is the the kind of the the you know, the proposed order in which these timber slots and post holes were constructed because well frankly who cares i mean like you go well what was it what was it like why did they use it why did they build it and that's where you have to start telling stories you tell stories about the evidence but you also need to tell stories about the people who used those things and that's something that really fascinates me and i think what you need to do is is just simply acknowledge that we're not 100% sure, but we think it might be this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, there's a prime example, isn't there, um, looking at some of the TV stuff that you've done in the past and something that we, we've often smiled about, my wife and I, when we've watched Time Team, is the fact that dear old um, Victor Ambrose, may he rest in peace, he's such a wonderful guy, could take a small piece of pottery and then draw an example of an entire civilization based on this pottery <laughs> yeah. fragment. And and that's exactly what that is, isn't it? It's, it's using the evidence to speculate as to how a site might have been used or what something might have looked like. But there's always a bit of individual interpretation in it as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you're trying not to do that, you're misrepresenting the past anyway. So, you know, take... Um, I'm sure many of your listeners will have visited this site, Durrington Walls and Woodhenge, which is quite close to Stonehenge. You can walk across the fields to it um, or, you know, drive around the corner, basically. It's it's kind of upriver on the, the River Avon. And it's probably a site that was effectively a sister site. It's where uh, they think many of the workers were housed, but it's also a ritual site in and of itself that is aligned for um, the, the sunrise on midwinter and so it's entirely possible that rituals or celebrations whatever the process or procession was um began at durrington walls and at woodhenge at the start of the day and then by the end of the day people are processed either across the land or down river um popped out 
near Stonehenge, uh, travelled up the route of um, of the avenue. The avenue is actually built a little bit later than the stones are erected, but it's entirely possible that people were still using that same route to get to the monument. And you reach the monument at midwinter sunset. But back at uh, back at Durrington Walls and Woodhenge, what you see are timber monuments that are made of concentric rings of timber posts. And there's no evidence that they ever had any roofs on them. Um, They might have had kind of lintels, some kind of joining bars above them. They might have been sort of much more tree-shaped and had their bark on them and limbs. Uh, Or they might have been kind of whittled down into looking like telegraph poles. Um, We don't know if they were strewn with textiles, with animal remains, with human remains even. We've got no idea. They could have been carved because obviously the timber doesn't survive. Only the, the evidence of the post hole does. So you can see the diameter, you can see the depth. That's pretty much it. And you can see their relationship to to one another. And some of the archaeological interpretations, some of the kind of the the drawings, the reconstructions, make it look like British Telecom had an excess of telegraph poles and they plonked them up in these kind of strange concentric circles. And it looks very sterile and very clean. And I, I kind of look at that and just think, well, that's... That's clearly not right. That's 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 nonsense. That's no that's not doing the evidence a better service than kind of saying to six different artists what do you think it might have looked like? And someone draws something with like incredible totem poles uh, sort of sort of designs and someone does something where, you know, there's, it kind of looks really gruesome and carnagey, and there's like bits of dead animal pinned up on these posts. And someone else draws something where you've got, I don't know, the, the kind of the, the Neolithic equivalent of Tibetan prayer flags draped across it. You've got someone else who's kind of got upturned trees where sometimes it's the roots sticking up and sometimes it's the branches. and Maybe the branches have their leaves, maybe they don't. And you kind of think, well... It's probably more like one of them than it ever is about the old telegraph pole situation. And I think that's where we do need to give ourselves license to imagine because attempting to remove the imagination is uh, you're on a hiding to nothing. If uh, if Robin Ince is listening to this episode and he does listen to the podcast quite often, I know... Um, Robin, you'll be very proud of the fact that in true Infinite Monkeyscape tradition, we're about half an hour into this episode now, and I'm just about to hit question one on my list. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, all, it's all fine. Um, <clears throat> stories change, don't they? Stories change and develop over time. They're not fixed. So can you give us some examples of, of how that works in terms of the landscape? How, how do some of these places in the landscape get used by our ancestors but then reused in a different way and in some cases are still used in a different way again now Mm. there's loads of lovely examples and I thought you might ask me this question mark and I was like oh what would I talk about what am I going to talk about so I've got two for you okay uh sort of opposite ends of the country and they are multi-period sites technical term for used and reused And the first one is a site called Sculptor's Cave on the Moray Firth. So top right of Scotland, overlooking the 
the Firth of Moray, big watery estuary. And this is a natural cave on the cliffs overlooking the water. And you can only access it either at low tide by scrambling over the rocks or at high tide it's it's cut off by the water and it's very difficult to access by boat because there's too many sharp jaggedy rocks you you'd kind of lose your your watercraft nowadays obviously you can also if you so choose abseil down from the top of the cliff but it's quite inaccessible you really need to want to get there in order to get there and the first evidence that we have of human use of this cave is from the late bronze age so about 1000 BC And what we find are the evidence of hearths where people have made fires and you can find the kind of the burnt stone, stuff like that. Also little pieces of metalwork, including gold hair ornaments, like lovely little um, pieces of jewellery that aren't obviously earrings or or pendants for necklaces. Um, And it looks like they, you know, you could twist them into your hair. So you'd have like little jewels in your hair. And the other thing that the archaeologists have found is a preponderance of skull fragments and jaws. Not so much the rest of the bodies, but definitely heads. And these heads that are 3,000 years old are mostly of children. And they're at the front of the cave. And it looks like, given that the hair ornaments are there as well, the heads were there not as skulls, but as fleshed, hairy heads. Now, this site was originally excavated um, early in the 20th century. And so some of the analysis that was done and some of the evidence that was effectively destroyed once they'd excavated it means that we can't piece together all the details that we otherwise would be able to with a kind of modern, more forensic level of excavation detail. So, for example, if you get tiny little fragments of of the neck vertebrae or the back of the head, you might be able to tell whether the person's had their head chopped off or whether it had naturally fallen off in some way, you know, because of um, them allowing parts of it to decompose. But then you kind of think, well, then the hair and the flesh of the face would have rotted away at that point as well so we don't have all the details but it appears that effectively the heads of children who had died or perhaps the heads of children who had been killed were then brought to this cave and displayed in some way by the entrance and that people were using this as maybe they were guardians of this cave. Maybe they were children that represented something dangerous. And so they had to be put into the cave rather than kept in the settlements, which were up on the cliff, uh, you know, in the kind of the the land that was was being used for, for farming, for agriculture, for settlements. Maybe they were offerings perhaps to a water deity, perhaps to the land deity, because again, we're in a cave, so it's a liminal zone where you've got, um, you're neither in the air nor under the ground. We don't know. One of the other super interesting things is that um, because this cave entrance is exposed to the cold, salt-laden winds blowing in off the Moray Firth, it also has the capacity to, to some extent, preserve 
the human remains in there. So particularly if you're kind of putting heads up on a sort of display of some description um, by the cave entrance, they would have lasted longer. They would have um, been preserved for much longer because they kind of get kind of salted and leathered um, than they ever would in the in the kind of the, the normal world up on the cliffs a bit a bit back from the sea. And so again, the people using this cave may well have interpreted that either in pragmatic terms, oh well, if we put the people in the salty sea cave, then they last longer, don't they, boss? But probably more likely, this is a a place that's special has special properties that that impact on your your actions in the cave. Now, the fact that we've got stone hearths there suggests that people were also spending some time there. Maybe these were ritual fires. Maybe there were fires that um, uh, were only there when you accompanying some kind of activity with the heads, when you brought a new head. Maybe people came to visit the heads, either for kind of ritual purposes, for memorial purposes, for communing with the spirits or the ancestors. I don't know. We don't know. But it's dead exciting to wonder. And the thing about this cave is that there's then a hiatus of about a thousand years. And then in the Iron Age, well, it's it's about 200 AD, give or take. So it's it's technically in the rest of Britannia. It's now Roman Britain, except up in this corner of, of, uh, of the Moray Firth, the Romans haven't Romanized anything. That, that everyone would have known about them. They may well have been trading partners, but they it wasn't really Roman Britain. So we call it the Roman Iron Age, slightly bizarrely. There is evidence of six adults who are executed in the cave. So it, they must have been walked into the cave alive. And then from the evidence that we have from the way that there are cut marks into their vertebrae, they've been forced onto their knees and then their heads are bowed and they've been executed by a sharp bladed metal weapon. So something like an axe. And they've all been um, beheaded and then left in the cave. And you think, oh, OK, well, if you're executing, you know, criminals or some kind of someone who's broken the rules in some kind of way, it does seem like a very elaborate process. And entirely out of the blue, this cave doesn't appear to have been used in the interim to walk them all to this sea cave and then execute them. But then you think, well, hang on a minute, maybe if you compare it to historical records, was this a period of time when the people of the Moray Firth, the indigenous uh, people living there, did feel a threat from the Romans they they felt the sense of, or perhaps from other tribal communities nearby who were perhaps allies of the Romans, had taken the opportunity to um, take advantage of this kind of political and social turmoil and gone, okay, we're going to go for them, you know, the folk on the up on the cliff. Maybe this is an offering. Maybe over a thousand years of, of, of oral history, of memory, people still knew about the cave with the children in it. That's not really the kind of thing you'd necessarily forget, particularly in a, a culture where all your history, all your stories are told verbally and linked to the, the the natural world around you as well. So 
maybe they always knew about the, the children in the cave. And then when the, you know, the proverbial really hits the proverbial fan, you kind of go, okay, like no holds barred. We need to go to the, to the kiddie cave and really make an offering that will help make the gods heed us. I don't, I'm speculating clearly, but I think that's quite intriguing. And imagine those six people, you know, they've been kind of walked walked across these these kind of slippery sea rocks at low tide. And then you walk into a cave where you can see the remains of children's heads. <laughs> it's a strange end, isn't it? It's a strange <laughs> it end. It really is. And then and it, 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 the cave is reused. There's Pictish carvings. And then there's modern graffiti as well. And people do still go and visit the cave, partly for the archaeology, but partly because... I think a lot of people do feel like this is a special place, partly because of its its natural features, but also just because of the weight of human history that has been played out there. Do you think people would, would still do that if the remains from that original use of the cave had been adult and not child? Oh, good question. Um, I think so. I mean, I think that's why people go to visit somewhere like West Kennet Longbarrow in Wiltshire, which is a, a chambered Neolithic tomb. Um, there were, there's the evidence of about 47 people, um, interred there, jumbles of bones. And they found adults, mostly, it's mostly adults, mostly men, some women, some children. And it's not a children's tomb. But it's still a tomb and it's a place where you can walk in and spend time. And it does feel like a special place. I think in the same way that, you know, walking into a, a kind of a more modern cemetery, um, you have a sense that you are somewhere different, where different rules apply, where there's a different weight of, of memory and of meaning. And I think that's probably what people respond to. I mean, the fact that it's a creepy dead children's cave is I mean, it's quite... I don't know, depending on how you feel, it's either cool or sad or mm. really gruesome. It's up but to you. It, but, but, it, <laughs> but it 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 adds to the sense of wanting to interact with it in some way, doesn't it? Whatever level you see it on, that's that's kind of the point, I guess. Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the things about the fact that they were children's remains is that it, it does challenge certain preconceptions that, that we have uh, about what a child is, what a child might represent and um, and kind of what power they might have. You know, in the kind of the secular world, children are these kind of dependents that we have to look after and invest lots into before they're, you know, grow up to be useful adults. But then when you look at the, his the, the wealth of folklore, children are much more potent, much more interesting, much harder to shape and get a grip on. Um, then perhaps we treat them in the day-to-day -day world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you said you have a second example. Give, give us your second example. Oh yeah, okay, quick one. So uh, let's uh, let's whittle down to uh, to Somerset now, uh, to Glastonbury Tor, iconic natural hill. It's got a tower on the top of it. Uh, anyone who's seen it will have noticed the um, the terraces. So it's sort of shaped. And also, anyone who's been to Glastonbury will probably have noticed that it's a quite a mystical place. And lots of people talk about the kind of the, the convergence of ley lines being there. Now, 
not to upset anyone's belief systems, but ley lines. The first person who came up with the concept of ley lines was this chap called Alfred Watkins. And he was a photographer working in the 1920s. And he liked taking pictures of the British landscape. And he coined the term ley lines. But he, he, what he'd noticed was that if you are on a, a piece of high ground or at a natural or um, ancient human feature in the landscape often it appears that other significant natural features or other significant human features appear to be in straight lines and his interpretation was that these were lays lines because people crossed the landscape in straight lines and so they built things in in sort of straight lines and the the kind of the mystical idea the idea that these are energetic lines only came in, only got introduced in the sort of 60s and 70s. Alfred Watkins never offered any kind of energetic, you know, it wasn't that you were being channeled by the earth energy or the St. Mary and Michael line. He was like much more pragmatic. Well, you know, if you're standing on the top of a hill and you walk that way, you walk to the ancient tomb. And then if you carry on walking, you get to the next summit. And then eventually you get to the village on the other side of the river, you know, that kind of thing. But for, for kind of um, following the, the kind of the belief systems of, of later practitioners from the 60s and 70s, Glastonbury is considered to be a place where a masculine line of energy and a feminine line of energy converge. And that brings you um, a great sense of, of kind of balance and equipoise and, and, and significance. And that's the kind of theory, I guess, that there's a massive Glastonbury Abbey and perhaps why there's an enormous Glastonbury Tor there. Now, in terms of the archaeology of Glastonbury Tor, the hill is natural, but the terraces that encircle it aren't. No one's quite sure. Some people say, oh, it's a mystical maze that leads you to the top. Um, but it's not really great evidence because it doesn't really function as a maze. There's no obvious route to the top it doesn't look entirely like a processional walkway either you don't kind of spiral around the hill and get to the top either and then other people have said oh hang on a minute maybe maybe we're trying to look for ritual um but actually it's just much more pragmatic and and these are a strip lynchets so a sort of medieval farming technique where you basically build terraces into a steep hillside so you then have flattened uh areas for cultivation you know think of rice paddy terraces mm. or actually in lots of parts of the the country you can still see strip lynchets um up hillsides of, of more marginal land um because these were constructed um in a period just before the black death when there was a lot of uh the the, the population was was pretty enormous and there were lots of peasants who were the, te the term is land hungry. Basically, they were trying to eke out a living by farming very, very marginal areas. And then the Black Death comes along. There's a lot of social and political change. Quite a few people have died, obviously. And so more uh, fertile areas of land become available for farming. And so people abandon these, these very marginal areas um, that aren't really good for cultivating like you'll get one crop out of them if you work incredibly hard and then it's pretty much rubbish um so they've just been turned over to pasture and that's why they're kind of still there they're like ghost landscapes um that have just been left because 
why would you ever try and make it back to a flat hillside? You wouldn't bother. Um, so there was one suggestion that um, Glastonbury Tor is actually just the remains of strip lynches. Now, the bottom, the bottom terraces, that is possible. They, they were cultivated. They were cultivated in the, the 17th century and there's some kind of paintings and drawings showing people farming those lower areas. But if you look at it, or if you've ever walked up it, you will know that the, the terraces further to the top just would never have been useful for, for growing anything, not even really tough crops. It's just, it's not feasible. So that's that kind of theory is crossed off the list. So the theory that, that most captures me is that it is a natural hill. It rises up out of the Somerset marshes, many of which have been drained now, except, you know, when they flood and, and you know, prove us that we are, we are not masters of nature. Um, but it would have been a much water, more watery landscape in prehistory before sort of um, industrial drainage of, of these marshlands. And so it would have risen up out of the water. It would have kind of looked like an island almost rising up out of the water. And one theory is that Neolithic people basically t transformed this natural hill into a monument by constructing it with very human looking um, aspects to it. So you kind of transform a natural hill into something that looks like this enormous monument. And then you can compare it to things like um, Silbury Hill in Wiltshire um, or other other monuments where it rises out of a natural landscape, but it is something more and something different. And then there's evidence of use at the top of the hill from around the um, 6th century. So uh, if you're feeling mean, call it the Dark Ages. If not, call it the Early Saxon period. Um, but this area, we're not really sure. There's evidence of uh, pottery that's been imported from the Mediterranean. There's evidence of, of bronze metalworking, uh, timber buildings, animal bones, so butchery. So that, you know, people are eating quite well at the top of this strange hill. But there's no defensive circuits. There's no gates. And so it's not really clear what it what it was used for, what it might, who might have used it. And then, of course, you've got the the kind of the more Christian, more recent medieval remains. So we know that there was a monastic community up on the top of the hill from about the 12th century. And the base of the tower that you can see now is from the 13th century. There's actually an earthquake in 1275 and the church fell down, but it was very hastily rebuilt. And so the bottom of the tower that you can see now is from this rebuilding just after 1275 and the rest of it is a little bit later. And then um, uh, the, probably the dark, I mean, the darkest is the darkest period chapter of history for Glastonbury Tor. Again, reused and remaining important, but in different ways to new generations of people is that um, in the 1530s, it was the site of, um, during the dissolution of the monasteries, the abbot and two of the monks from Glastonbury Abbey, down at the bottom of the hill, were marched up to the top of the hill and hung, drawn and quartered and their bodies were laid out, strung up on the, the sides of, of St. Michael on the Mount, which is the name of the church on the top of the hill, um, as a punishment and very obvious visceral demonstration of what happens if you misbehave um, because they were trying to hide some of the Abbey's treasures 
from the from the king's inquisitors and so they were punished and displayed and the rest of the church was dismantled demolished the stone was dragged down the hill uh, a lot of it's reused in the the buildings of the town the only thing they kept was the church tower so that's what you can see now and weirdly there are niches in the tower where there would have been uh you know sculptures carvings of all the different saints and the archangels and christ at the top the um the, the the team who were who were there to dissolve the monastery and and destroy all these you know um disgusting idolatrous catholic horrors left three sculptures well they left one sculpture in the niche which is st dunstan who was the abbot and the founder of glastonbury abbey in about 9 in the 900s they've left him intact so he's the only one standing in this tower and then on the other side You've got two little relief carvings, one of an angel weighing an immortal soul in the kind of the scales to work out whether it gets to go to heaven. And the other one is uh, of St. Bridget milking a cow. Why'd they leave them? Don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, love it. I mean, you know, you can fill your boots with stories there, can't you? Well, two of those three are certainly very significant in terms of folklore, aren't they? Dunstan is 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 folklorically significant, and, and Bridget certainly is. Yeah, and um, and I mean, it's not that the people post Reformation didn't believe in angels and didn't believe in the immortal soul, but they decided that for whatever reason they'd keep those things, but not the others. Mm. Don't know. Again, we can only speculate, can't, can't we? we? And isn't it lovely too? Oh, yeah, I love it. Absolutely. I think I think places and sites and artifacts where you can educate yourself on all the evidence, but then your guess is as good as the experts, as any eminent professor. I mean, that's that's wonderful. I, I do lots of public talks, and I think that's one of the things that I really want to get across to to people, audiences, children, and adults alike. Just saying. This isn't for you to passively be educated. It's for you to engage with. This is your history. These are your stories. You know, whether it's in literal terms, these are your ancestors, or in inheritance terms, because you live here, these are yours. This is your history. There's just a couple of other points that I want to, to briefly touch on, oh, yeah, uh, go on. <laughs> before we close. Um one is one is something that you mentioned earlier. Um, you mentioned village greens earlier on, and, and I just want to briefly touch upon the the community aspect of landscapes and stories within the landscape. Um, in your hidden histories book, in, in the section on the village green, uh, I'm just going to read your opening paragraph, if you'll indulge from that, where you say. A village green is effectively a mini-common in the heart of the village. Town and village greens tend to have complicated histories and sometimes multiple private owners. On legally registered greens, we may all indulge in, quote, lawful sports and pastimes, as generations of people have done before us. Now, that, that's an example of a, a part of the landscape which, which is really significant to us as, as communities. I live in a small village in Devon. You know, there's a shop and a church and a lot of green space, and that's pretty much it. That, that's really the stereotype of, of what we're talking <laughs> about here, I think. Um, 
those kinds of gathering places are they that they were culturally very significant you know fairs took place there um all sorts of different village activities you know the world has moved on urbanization has has caused a lot of changes are these kinds of gathering places still culturally significant now i think they are and in the places that they aren't because of of I guess, modern neglect, I would lobby incredibly strongly that if we can revive them, they can become important places again. Because we need places to gather. That's the essence of community. And we've all felt it, haven't we, over the past you know year and a half, almost two years now, of the impact when you are not allowed to gather when when it that is not possible we are all lesser for it and i think outdoor places um green spaces that connect us not only to each other but also to the place where we are are hugely important um the fact that they have that that greens and commons have this wealth of history that you can sort of trace a line back to sort of say on market day, a thousand years ago, people were here doing what we are doing now is incredibly powerful. Um, You know, a lot of those sort of village green activities and dancing around the maypole and, you know, sort of girls in little frilly white dresses are, are Victorian revivals because they also were responding in, in many ways to the same pressures that we're feeling now, you know, an industrial uh, an industrial world where where time was short, but leisure time had become sort of fetishized slightly. Um, th- there was a kind of harking back to a, a golden age of the past and that we can't lose this. This time we can do it as possibly a little less, um, you know, imperialistically demanding that everybody dances around the maypole wearing matching frilly dresses. But there are ways that we can recreate those 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 rituals of community in places that are real places in the real world, in real life, not virtual spaces, but real spaces embedded in in the landscape that I think are super important. Um, I'm a I'm a member of the Open Spaces Society and they campaign and, and help communities and individuals protect these spaces as well as access to the countryside footpaths. Things like that. Yes, because these revivals do go in cycles as well, don't they? You have all these Victorian revivals, but but as you say, there's there's actually a resurgence very recently in interest in folklore and culture and and social history. So those spaces are being readopted again and used Mm. for these kinds of things. But but yet they're still under threat, aren't they? Despite all of that, in some cases. Yes, exactly. And and the thing about something like a village green is once you build on it, it's not there anymore. You can't revive it. So it's kind of use it or lose it situation. And that's also the the kind of the basis in law too, that um, once a, a village green or common is under consideration for development, you are no longer legally able to claim it as a village green. So some village greens and commons are already protected. And if they're protected, if they're acknowledged 
and legally listed as a common or green, then they're very, um, very, very strongly protected in law. And you won't suddenly over the night, overnight get a kind of developer going, okay, we're going to build lots of houses here, or we're going to drain that pond and do something totally different. They are protected very strongly in law unless they uh, can be delisted. And, and you've got many ways to appeal that and to find out about it in advance. But the, basically, if you have a green space in your community, which people do use for picnicking, for kicking a ball around, for walking the dog, for meeting up for an outdoor coffee, all that stuff. But it's just sort of common law. It's, it's just understood that that space that you're, you use, you will use, but it's not protected in law. You can get it protected by showing that it's been used in that way for at least 20 years. But you have to do that proactively. You have to do that before there is a threat of development on the land. Because if the time you go, oh, hang on a minute, that thing's really important to us. If you only realise that when you see a big signboard saying six new beautiful houses going to be built on this green space, it's too late. So we have to be proactive to protect those places in our landscape and protect the history and the culture and the community use. They are super important because that is where we gather and that's where we tell our stories. Yes, and there's and there's, there's a lot of interest in in making sure that we don't lose those stories. But key to that is also to not lose those spaces where the stories take place. So yeah, that's exactly. A key thing to take away there, isn't there? And they and they don't have to be, you know, those those kind of picture perfect bits of, you know grass with a, a kind of a mature old oak tree and some you know ducks wandering around the duck pond it might be that scrubby bit of woodland that everybody walks in and kids build their dens in that still counts and that's still important and when we lose them we lose them forever um and of course there are certain developments that we do need that rural communities can't be kind of forced to be held in time you know, there are rural communities who are going, hang on a minute, we're losing our services. We don't have homes for people who grew up in the village to move into. We do need development, but it has to be considered development and it has to be in collaboration with the community that's already there. It can't be imposed from outside because this is what we think you should want. Um, because that's how you, that's how you, well, that's how you, you traumatize a community, isn't it? That's how you, you, create harm rather than help yeah yeah absolutely so so protect those spaces that's as political as this podcast ever gets but <laughs> yeah yeah exactly but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah the the think about the the use of the space and its and its cultural significance and, and that's where what we're angling at here really isn't it the, yeah the final exactly. thing that I, the final thing that i just want to cover is you mentioned archaeological storytelling earlier on um which kind of leads me into thinking not just about sites and about the landscape but about those objects and artifacts that we find within it there was i was reading this morning there's an interesting article in the guardian yesterday i don't know whether you saw it about um our not wishing to throw things away <laughs> and and you know in modern times it's like we hold on to that old cup that belonged to granny or whatever and, and, and sort of insignificant objects mm which have meaning to us and how evidence seems to suggest going back to the iron age and finds in iron age sites that exactly the same thing was important 
then, and there was a whole article about this in The Guardian yesterday, um, do you do you think that's the case? Do you think that objects have always held significance, not just for these big, you mentioned the word ritual earlier, ritualistic purposes, religious purposes, but also those everyday objects? Yeah, I think so. I think it's because people have always, we've always searched for meaning and a sense of our place in in the line in the in the kind of the the fabric of of time and and the past and the future and where we sit don't we regardless of of how we imagine time passing whether that's in a cyclical nature whether that's shooting forwards like an arrow we still curate those memories because they make us make sense and they make our activities make sense so whether that's an heirloom from your granny or whether that's the iron age equivalent which is um a quern stone so for grinding grain that you've kept and then you bury in the walls of your new hut and you think well that might be because you cared about granny who used it or it might be because that kind of represents some kind of ancestral claim to the land or it might be both you know those two things don't it doesn't need to be either or and then um, i'm a terrible one for keeping things but i think that's okay because i'm kind of curating my history through those artifacts they yeah. have meaning they're not just stuff you know you kind of do a full marie kondo and you go well i've lost all my stories now as well yeah. it's a really important point uh, and in a forthcoming episode um in, in the next couple of months i'm going to be talking to um rachel morris from metaphor which is a museum design service she she wrote a book called um museum makers which is essentially about curating your own personal museum through through objects that you you have at home which are culturally significant yeah so that's a key point um but to, to, just to wrap that up in 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 what you mentioned as well how do you then use archaeological storytelling to take these artifacts and interpret or reinterpret them for people now so I've been working on um, a project with a, a professional storyteller, a guy called Jason Buck, who um, he's coming from the storytelling side of things and I'm coming from the archaeology side of things. And what we realised was that we were both fascinated by the stories you can tell about artefacts and sites that take a leap of imagination beyond the evidence. So we make up, effectively make up stories that could have happened or maybe should have happened to the people using an artefact or why a hoard was deposited where it was or what the thinking was behind someone inscribing uh, Viking runes um, that that represent Odin and Heimdall on an artefact that was used for spinning that was used at a time when ostensibly the settlers in this place where it was discovered, uh, Solaby St. Clement in, St. in Lincolnshire, should have been Christian. They should have been Christian, but they were still inscribing spindle worlds for spinning um, with the names of the old gods. And you go, okay, well, like, who did that? Why did they do that? What's the meaning behind that? And we choose artefacts and sites where 
it feels like there's a link. You know, I can understand why I would go to church on a Sunday, but also make offerings to the old gods when I'm sending my my family out to sea. Um, and I think for me, those are the places where archaeological storytelling can really come come into its own. It can be something super famous like Stonehenge or the story behind the Sutton Hoo ship burial, or it could be something super teeny tiny, you know, the penny that you found in the garden when you were digging the potatoes. Tell a story about that. You know, if you've got um, little ones in your life, the next time you find a, a you know, a piece of pottery in, in, in the garden, kind of investigate it, wonder about it, explore it, not only as an artifact in and of itself, but also as an opportunity to tell stories, because that is something that our ancestors have done for millennia. And that in itself is a very powerful connection to the past. Yeah, we, we have a little frozen Charlotte that, that my wife dug up in a garden years ago, and which um, she wrote a, a newspaper piece on it recently as, as the actual story behind frozen Charlottes. But that's an example of something that that could have a million interpretations based on how you looked at it, couldn't it? What's a frozen Charlotte? Oh, frozen Charlotte is like a little tiny China doll. Oh, um, little little weenie china doll, which uh, the, it's quite a complicated story behind it. Um, okay, I'll, I'm going to have to I'll, look I'll, it up. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you her article. You can. Read okay, that would be lovely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes, amazing. So. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, we moved to a to a house a couple of years ago, so we've been doing quite a lot of work in the garden. And um, I mean, I haven't found anything genuinely mystical but I found like little sherds of pottery some of them are from the 1960s some of them are probably I don't know turn of the century but my little three-year-old is fascinated by them what is it mummy and I could go I don't know it's just a bit of pottery and that's the (laughs) that's the end of our interaction about it yeah but what a missed opportunity oh yeah it could be so much more couldn't it I mean the the hedge across the back of our garden is a prime example because Devon hedges are essentially built by chucking all your old rubbish in it and then putting earth over the top. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've dug out an iron bedstead, a hobnail boot sole, <laughs> all sorts of uh, horse trough, all sorts of stuff out of the back of there just because it's, there are things sticking up out of my bank that don't need to be there. But yeah, That's there's, there's stuff everywhere. Some of them, some of them, Mark, could have been ritual offerings, and you've upset the ancestors. Now you never know. Well, do you I know, thought... I did have to, I did have to post on Twitter because I did dig some bones out, and oh. and wanted to know if, what they were. So I posted them on Twitter because I thought there's bound to be some bone experts that that follow the podcast Twitter feed, and sure enough, there were. And uh, and they went, oh yeah, that's a chicken carcass. <laughs> okay. I could come up with a much better story than that, you know? and that's exactly what we're there talking about. <laughs> Marianne, thank you so much for for taking the time to come on and and uh, talk about uh, the, the importance of the landscape. It's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, what have you got coming up in the next few months, uh, and how can people find out more about it on the interweb? So I'm I'm doing a few more events around um, my newest book, Secret Britain, Unearthing Our Mysterious Past, where I explore 75 artefacts and sites that have these stories that archaeological evidence tells us so much, but then the space to wander and wonder and imagine and tell stories. Um, and I'm also um, 
working on a, a another couple of archaeological storytelling shows that will hopefully um, meet the light of the day and probably online audiences uh, towards the end of the year. So to keep up with that, um, go to either Twitter or Instagram at Marianne O'Hotter um, or my website, MarianneOhotter.com. Perfect. I hope everybody will do that. Do tag me into anything you want sharing on. And I'm, I will do. Thank you so much. send it on for you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. It was wonderful to have the chance to chat to Marianne, and I would urge you to seek out her books, which are not only fascinating, but beautiful to look at too. Now, on Tuesday the 17th of August... I'll be taking part in a major panel for the American Folk Life Centre at the Library of Congress, looking at folklore and podcasting, along with Aaron Mankey from Law Podcast, Christina Downs from Crime Law, and Lamont Jack Purley of the African American Folklorist. The event is free to attend online, so visit the Library of Congress blog on their website for a link to sign up. I hope some of you can join us there. Right. Time to start preparing for the next 100 episodes. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.